0: the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And um, just let me gather your attention. We're we're coming back into our series on faith, and we're going to be looking at the life of Noah today. All right. And so I'm going to read all of Hebrews 11, starting from chapter one, and then we'll end on verse seven, which is the life of Noah. through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. Here's our key verse. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me read that again. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Father, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in awe of you. And I need you so much, and we need you together. Father, the story of Noah is unusual, but it has a message we need to hear so badly. Father, would you move amongst us? Lord, would you pierce our hearts and open our ears? Father, I pray that even as Jesus would say, those who have ears, let them hear that we would be people by your grace and also by our seeking that have ears to hear what you are truly saying. Father, how many people in the days of Jesus would see him perform miracles and hear his words and go away unchanged? Father, I think of the rich young ruler who was, thought he was doing so well and obeying your words so well, but when he encountered Jesus and Jesus said, give up your idol, which is money, and follow me, he went away sad. Father, that is so possible for me, to go away sad from an encounter with Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do works amongst us, that you would make the holiness of God descend upon us with sobriety and seriousness as we hear your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to say this morning that as we are learning, we're being taught by God's word what true faith is. We're not going to make it up for ourselves. We're going to hear from God what he believes and he expects, and he calls us to his true faith. Um, This morning, what the story of Noah is going to teach us is that faith believes in the warnings of God. And responds in a way that seeks to be saved and wants others to be saved as well. Okay, this is what I'm saying is is what we're meant to learn about faith. Faith responds to the warnings of God and seeks to be saved and to help others be saved as well. The scripture looks at the life of Noah uh, for this lesson, okay? Noah is a little bit famous these days. Did anybody see that movie that came out about Noah, which was like the Lord of the Rings meets bad biblical exegesis or something? Did anybody watch that? Was it any good? No, no, I didn't. Okay, good. I didn't. Well, good, good. Make a bad movie about the Bible, lose money. That's the way it should be. Um, But Noah is a bit famous, and he's also famous from Sunday school lessons, you know, in the picture of him on a boat with a giraffe's net sticking out of the, one of the windows and stuff. Um, and we do sanitize the story of Noah, but let's remember what the story of Noah was about. Noah's story is from the book of Genesis. It starts in chapter 6. And what happens is that in um, human history at that point, the the terror of human sin was finding a full expression. Okay? The seed of sin went into humanity through Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit and then they were ejected from the garden and right away that seed of sin began to bear a horrible fruit with Cain killing Abel and then the the generations of Cain growing in their pride and in their um their their violence until you get seven generations from Cain you get this guy named Lamech who is boasting to his two wives eh, that he killed a young man for insulting him And then we turn over and we look at Adam's line that continues through Seth and seven generations from that we get um, Enoch. But as that that genealogy continues, we come to the life of Noah. And so Noah's life is in the context of a world of sin finding full expression and the planet is filled with violence. That's the description of the Bible. And So in chapter 6 we read this in verse 8. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So just imagine a bunch of lamex running around, murdering each other. Anytime they feel they've been injured or slighted or insulted, they just pick up a stick or a rock. And it's, you know, the big, the, it's, it, this is survival of the fittest. This is Darwin in action. And, uh, and God sees that it's corrupt and full with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So he's talking about mankind. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so Noah is this rare person. He's a man who's walking in faith with God. He's walking with God. The scripture says... And so as God looks over his world that he created, and which has totally gone to pot, he says, I'm going to put a stop to humanity en masse, because they're my worst enemies. They're ruining everything. They're killing each other. It's just so bad that I need to put a stop to it. And I'm going to put a stop to it with the creation itself. Okay, I'm going to use the earth, which humanity is defiling, in order to display my wrath and put a stop to the evil. And he comes to Noah, who he has a relationship of faith with, and he tells Noah what's going to happen. And he gives him a promise, but it's a promise, it's a a negative promise. He says, I am going to wipe out everything. He warns Noah. This is a warning of what's going to happen in the future. All right. And Noah is given instructions in how to respond to God's warning in order to avoid the destruction that's coming. And God says to him, make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. And he gives the rough dimensions and gives Noah some room for some creative expression. And then he says, there are going to be animals. You're going to fill this thing full of animals, and this is how it's going to run. And so we see in this story this progression, okay? Things are really bad. God's going to do something about it. He goes to the people of God, which is just one man at this time. He tells him the warning that's going to happen, and he instructs him how this destruction can be avoided. And we know that Noah is a man of faith because of this. At the end of this section here, the word of God says about Noah, as soon as God st- stops giving him instructions about the ark, this is what it says. It says this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's we, how we know that Noah is a man of faith. That's how we, he got into Hebrews chapter 11. He heard the warning. He was instructed how to seek salvation and he did it. That was his faith. He heard the warning. He was given an instruction on how to be saved. And he obeyed. That's how we know Noah is a man of faith. And As you may remember from this story, what God did was he, um, he flooded the earth. However he did that, he flooded the earth and he sealed Noah inside the ark with his family members, his family three sons and their wives, and Noah's wife was in there, and he protected them in this ark through the flood and then placed them on a mountaintop after he began to make the water evaporate or recede or however you want to read it. And that's the story of Noah, the man of faith. And his story does go on, but that's what scripture is highlighting from Hebrews chapter 11. The story of Noah. He heard God's warning, believed that it would happen, and responded according to God's instructions and how to be saved. And by doing that, also welcomed his family's salvation into it. So other people were saved by his faithfulness. And the scripture holds this up to us. as something that we need to insert into our understanding of what faith in Jesus means we too need to learn how to hear God's warnings, believe that it will happen, respond how God teaches us how to respond to avoid it and to be saved, and to do it in such a way that invites other people to come along into God's salvation. This is not the most exciting topic in the world talking about God's punishments, talking about his wrath, talking about how he's promised to bring destruction on people is not pleasant, is it? I don't see anybody doing the happy clappy on this. No, you're feeling the weight of this. We're feeling the weight of this. This is serious stuff. And as I was processing through this message, you know, I I'm working on this way of of studying the Word of God, where I, I try to get a really good idea of how our broader culture thinks about what this scripture is teaching, as well as how I, in my own life, react mentally, emotionally to um, what the Word of God is saying. And, and I've had to do some repenting in this time. Uh, my, my, my sense is that in the broader culture, the unbelieving culture, um, the idea of God promising a future judgment and it coming to pass is something that gets mocked. Okay, it's mock-worthy, and sometimes people give reasons for this. You may remember a few years ago, um, it happened again where somebody rented a bunch of billboards and was saying, you know, February 22nd at 6:35, every it's all going to end. Maybe they're predicting meteors or whatever it is, a nukes going off. I don't really know, but every once in a while. Some people have decided that they figured out when the last day of the world is, and they start, you know, um, racking up their credit cards, because they're not going to have to pay it off, or they, they're giving their cats to the neighbor, because they're expecting to get raptured, and who's going to take care of Fluffy for the, during the tribulation, so they give it to the neighbor. They don't give the gospel to the neighbor, they give the cat to the neighbor, which is just crazy. Um, and they start doing stuff, and then nothing happens, and then the world just comes in, and it's like, oh, you you dummies and and stuff like that and so it's just um, a mockable thing and it's a mockable doctrine to believe in the the future judgment of god coming and and the bible knows this um in second peter that last chapter of second peter is all about dealing with god's delay because people are going to start looking around going it's been a while it's been actually two thousand years of you guys promising that jesus would come back and wrap this thing up and i'm and so Peter's teaching them. And this was only a couple of years after, you know, a couple of decades after Jesus went to heaven. They're already saying this. Oh, you guys talk about Jesus returning all the time and nothing happens. You're a bunch of idiots. Just get out of here. We're going to do our own thing. And Peter says, this is how you should respond to it. Number one, um, God has the power to do this and he will do it. And number two, you're mistaking his patience for his non-existence. He, he's waiting for the right time because he wants people to be saved. And so you Christian don't join these guys in mocking the impending day of God's judgment. You've got to hold fast. You need to believe in God's warnings and respond in a faith-filled way. So that's the culture. But in the larger church culture, most of the pressure is to actually downplay the seriousness of, 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 a, of the judgment of God. And, um, and so I acknowledge these things. And I also acknowledge that as you know, a, a, a leader there you don 't get a lot of pleasure in making people miserable, it, or at least i 'm assuming that that isn 't uh, a character trait that would be a blessing to the church to make people feel uncomfortable, make them sad, make them feel horrible about themselves. There are times for these things, but that 's not something you should enjoy amen like um, let 's say that you have a doctor okay, and they 're a surgeon, and if if you say so, why did you get into surgery? And your doctor's like, I just love cutting things and the blood, especially the blood. You, you might think, I need a different doctor. But if you go to a surgeon, you're like, so why do you get into Well, I want to help people and make them better. It's like, okay, that's good. You, you want to help people and make them better? I trust you to cut me. Um, just the guy who, who failed butcher school and but was good at memorizing body parts, um, not so much. And so there's, a, there's a definitely a tendency to not enjoy the heavy subjects, not enjoy the hard truths. And it's, it's been too easy for me to just back off of these things. But I'm, I'm repenting of these things just before the Lord. I'm repenting of, of uh, not being like Jesus. So what I want to do is to help myself and all of us kind of embrace the truth that there are warnings from God and that faithfulness hears those warnings and responds to them. I want to look at Jesus and his life as a warning giver and a warning taker and how he acted out the Moses story again, but in a bigger and eternal way. Okay? Jesus was the man who really believed in the warnings of God and really did respond with faithfulness so that he would pass through the fire and get his resurrection as well as provide a salvation for his household. Okay? Jesus is the true Noah. And I want to look at his life and how he dealt with warnings and how he dealt out warnings, okay? And I want to call us to be like Jesus. This is our job. What's your job between getting saved and going to meet Jesus face-to-face? Be like Jesus. In Jesus' life, in the broad strokes, he dealt out two kinds of warnings, okay? The first warning was that he was warning... Israel, that Jerusalem and the temple were going to be destroyed if they rejected him. That's the smaller one. And the second warning was he was warning everybody that if they would not repent and they rejected him, they would go to an eternal place of torment hell. So I want to walk us through these from scripture. The warnings of Jerusalem. When Jesus was approaching Jerusalem before his Passion Week, before he would be executed, um, Luke 19:41 and following tells us that this happened and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this is what Jesus is saying. I have come and I brought my warning to you, Jerusalem, and you didn't have a place to hear it in your heart. And you will prove that you have rejected my warning about the impending wrath of God coming upon you by executing me in a few days. And because you are doing that, because you didn't recognize what's what's going on right here, an enemy will come and they will surround you and they will tear you down and they will either slay or enslave everyone in you. That was Jesus' warning. That was Jesus' prediction. And you know what happened? It absolutely came true. About 35 years after Jesus uh, went to heaven, there was a rebellion in Jerusalem against the Romans who ruled over the world. And a general named Titus, who would sometime afterwards become Caesar, took a Roman army to Jerusalem and surrounded it. And there was a multi-year siege. Okay? Jesus said, an army will hem you in. Yet for years, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman army. And eventually, I don't know exactly what happened, uh, there was a breach made in the wall or the Romans got in. Um, I think there was a lot of infighting. The people inside of Jerusalem started warring against each other and setting things on fire. And Titus took his armies in and they just killed or enslaved everybody. Um, if I got my history right, they they made a forest of crucifixions around the city as they just crucified one rebel after another. That's what they did. When you had an insurrection against the state, they crucified you as an example for everybody else. And Jesus happened. There was just three of them. It was Jesus and those two, two guys. But after Jerusalem fell, they just boop, 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 everywhere, just crucifixion, 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 crucifixion. And Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who worked for the Romans, was there. And he said that Titus's instructions were that they would leave one wall standing of the wall of Jerusalem, so that people could come to Jerusalem and see what a humongous city had been conquered by the Romans. And the walls were so tall, and the towers were so great. But, he said, everything else is, needs to turn into rubble. So that the people wouldn't even be able to say, this stone belonged in the wall over here. They would just say, where's the stones? Okay? And so the Romans set to work destroying the temple and destroying the walls until it was just rubble so that you couldn't even find the pieces that had been taken apart. And uh, after Titus had done this and been Caesar, they built this arch for him, an archway, sorry, a triumphal arch in Rome to commemorate the day that he took Jerusalem. So this is historical fact. People don't argue that he did this. The arch is there and a description of all the spoils that he took out of Jerusalem when he sacked it and how how he decided it was just going to be totally leveled. That happened in 70 AD. Okay, so that happened 70 years about after Jesus was born. Jesus warned them, they didn't heed the warning, and the word of God came true over them. And I'm emphasizing that because Jesus had other warnings, okay? His other warnings were for the people of God, and especially even his disciples, And his main warnings were, if you reject me and you reject my words, you will go to Gehenna. You will go to a place of eternal torment. And so we can read this in in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, dealing with lust. There's the famous cut off your hand, cut off your foot, cut off your eye section. And in Mark chapter 9 as well, and this one I, I wanted to make sure, is Jesus warning unbelievers when he says, deal with your sins severely so that you don't go to Gehenna, you don't go to hell. And in Mark chapter 9, he's having a private meeting with his disciples. Okay? They're in a household. He's not speaking to the crowds. He's not doing televangelism. He's, he's speaking to the people who say, you're our Lord and Master. And he says to them, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it would be better for you to enter into eternal life with only one eye than with both eyes be cast into Gehenna. That's, that's to the Christians. He's talking and warning. That's to you and me. The picture from the New Testament from Jesus' time about eternal life was that there was kind of two destinations you could go um, there was, when they talked about being dead, they described it as going to Hades, okay? So going to the land of the dead. In the Old Testament, they would call that Sheol. In the New Testament, they would call it Hades. And that's where in Acts, it says that Jesus went after he died. He went to Hades, okay? And that just meant you, you go to that state, that spiritual place where your spirit and your soul continue to exist, even though you're separated from your body and your body is, is dead. And Jesus went there. But within the realm of Hades, there are two different experiences. There's a good one, and there's a bad one. And the good one is sometimes described as paradise. You may remember in Luke, when Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's saying, you and I together are going to go to the place of the dead, and when I'm there, it's paradise. And then we're going to leave. He doesn't say that, but I think that's what happened. So you may remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus from... Um, luke 16 and jesus is telling this parable about a rich guy who has lots of food and comfort in his life and a poor man who begs in front of his house and he's got it so bad that he's sick and he has open sores and while he's begging the dogs come and lick his wounds and he's so tired that he can't even like beat them off okay so dogs are coming and eating his pus and his blood because he's got it so bad and then jesus says you know later on they both died and the rich man, in torment, sees Lazarus over at Abraham's bosom, so right next to him, and he says, Abraham, send Lazarus with, just to dip his hands in some water and come over here and drop it on my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. And Abraham says, it's not possible. Um, and the point of that parable, We read as we keep going on, the rich man says, well, at least send Lazarus to go talk to my brothers, because I have a bunch of brothers, and I don't want them to end up here too. And Abraham's response is is the point of the parable. He says, they have the scripture, they have the words of Moses, and if they won't listen to scripture, they're not going to listen to somebody, even if he comes back from the dead. The point of the parable is, hear the word of God, hear the warnings of the word of God. Because if you're the kind of person who hears God's warnings and is, and are hard hearted towards it, you can have a conversation with somebody who was dead and came back from the grave and it will do you no good because you don't trust the word of God. That's the point of the parable. But the point I want to make is this, when Jesus tells parables, he always uses real-life examples. Okay? So to the fisherman, he says, the end of the age will be like a fisherman who hauls in fish and collects the ones they want and gets rid of the ones they don't. When he's talking to shepherds, he says, the end of the age will be like this. It's a bunch of shepherds bringing their flocks together, and they're going to separate the sheep from the goats. When he's talking to farmers, he says, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out sowing seed, and he was just casting out the seed out there, and it fell in different places, and different things happened. And he keeps on using real-life examples to illustrate his points. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like um, when the Flandor aliens came down and they were zapping people with their glue blob rays and turning them into you know, which is you're like, what? That's, that's all made-up nonsense. He doesn't use made-up nonsense. He uses how he understands the universe to work to make a point about something. And so we learn from this that Jesus understands that even right after death, you experience either going to be with the people of God in paradise or to Gehenna, hell. Um, The word hell is, in Jesus' time, he used the word Gehenna, and Gehenna was the name of the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And this is important. Don't let me lose you. What happened was, during Israel's history, there was a time when they started worshipping the false god Molech, who was the god of another nation. And one of the things that Moloch required for worship was child sacrifice. So they would have this idol, and inside the idol there would be a cavity near the stomach, and they would put the child in there, and then they would start a fire under the idol, and the fire would consume the child inside the idol like like a god eating somebody. And after they had done this worship for a certain amount of time, so that um, Gehenna, which is Hebrew for the Valley of Hinnom, was associated with Moloch worship, the good king Josiah rose up. I believe it was Josiah. I could be having a detailed blurb here. but And Josiah was on a mission to get rid of idols and restore proper worship. And so he declared that this area, Gehenna, where they worship Moloch, should get turned into the town dump. Because what do you do when you find the place where, where the devil lives? You make it as much like hell as possible. It's an object lesson. Okay, so this is where the devil lives. Well, let's make it like what God is going to do to him. We'll fill it full of garbage, and we'll fill it full of manure, and we'll fill it full of our junk, and then we'll start it on fire. Good King Josiah knew what to do when you had an idol. You desecrated it, you toppled it, and you mocked it. Okay? And that garbage dump was still there in Jesus' day, they still had it, and so he would look, look out over this garbage dump flaming with fire, which was known for devil worship, and he would say That 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 is your best picture of what an eternity without me is like living there, where the fire never stops and the worms never are satisfied, just experiencing Gehenna forever and ever and ever. That's a pretty serious warning. You don't want to go there. You don't want to end up there. So what I'm saying is that Jesus is a true Noah. And knowing the warnings of God, knowing the final judgment, which will take kind of that paradise-Gehenna divide and make it permanent, whether you're either dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth or separated from God forever in the lake of fire where the torment of the devil and his angels is experienced day and night forever and ever. Um, how did Jesus behave? How did he act? When he was tempted in the desert by the devil, did he give in to it with an excuse? No. He had a boat to build. And so he needed to be faithful to God. He needed to deal with his temptations. And so what he did, it took a lot less wood, but instead of building a boat, he allowed God to make for him a cross. And instead of covering it with pitch and tar, he covered it with his own blood. And he submitted to God's will because he knew of God's warnings he submitted to God's will and he allowed himself to become a sacrifice. God put him to death for us. So that anybody who would come to Jesus in faith and say, I don't want to be destroyed. I want to know God and please him. You come to Jesus with that desire and you live that life. It's like walking into Noah's boat. And you get to ride out the storm of life and the storm of God's final judgment inside the protection of the ark that God has provided for you. that's what Jesus did. Guys, this is our hope. This is our good news. Our good news comes on the heels of bad news. The bad news is, apart from Jesus, we're not right with God. We're in big trouble, and no matter what anybody else has done to us, we are going to have to answer for what we have done to other people and for what we have done to God in rejecting him. That's not good news, and I recognize that, and you recognize that, and we're all depressed, and, and we need to do something. And so God gives us the instructions. The same way he gave Noah the instructions, he gives us the instructions. He says this, repent. And believe the good news. Turn away for, from your life without God and turn to Jesus Christ and He will save you. And whatever He tells you to do, you do it. Simple pimple. That's the instructions. Believe in Jesus and whatever He tells you to do, do it. And as you discover sins in your life, as time goes on, don't be kind to them. Don't feed those little kittens that turn out to be roaring lions. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot. Poke out your eye. Get rid of everything that will keep you from knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, walking with Jesus, experiencing Jesus, being joyful in Jesus, and being saved by Jesus. Be ruthless with it. Because the consequences of losing everything are so terrible. There are reasons why we don't talk about this lots. Uh, sometimes if the reason might be, you know, you grew up in a church and all they ever did was talk about how you might go to hell. That's all they talked about. And maybe they even told you, and you can't even know if you are going to go to heaven unless you're, you have a heart attack in the midst of feeding orphans. Then we're pretty sure. If you have a heart attack in the midst of feeding orphans, we're pretty sure you were a good guy or a good lady. That could have been your experience. You're just like, I don't need to hear any more of this judgment stuff. I got enough growing up. Maybe you think it's dumb. Um, Maybe you think it's just shameful, like it's not appealing to believe this stuff. Maybe you just find it uncomfortable to think that um, the people at your workplace could go to an experience of eternal torment. And you're afraid to do something about it. Maybe you actually talk to somebody about this. Sometimes when you think, oh man, hell is real, the first thing you can say to somebody is... How are you doing? My name's Rob. You're going to go to hell, and and that's not the biblical method for bringing people into the kingdom. There is a place for this truth, but it's usually not the leadoff to a stranger. And it just went wrong, and so you're like, I'm I'm done with this stuff. But I want to just end by inviting us into a heart that I think is a heart of faith that knows God is good and believes in the gospel and holds on to the warnings of God, okay? I want to take us there. So I'm turning us to Romans chapter 8. If you were with us last week and we were talking about God's love and how he so desires that we would know and experience his love deeply, that that the Apostle Paul was praying that nothing would keep us from knowing the depth of the love of God in Christ. And part of what we did in that message, at least in one of the sermons, was talk about Romans 8, And just the glory of the gospel and how God has sought us out in Jesus and made the way through faith so that nothing now in Christ can separate us from the love of God. Because we have Jesus, there's nothing, nothing in the world. There's no pain, no suffering, no swords, no bombs, no guns, no sickness, no economic downturns, no prime minister, no president, no anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we enjoyed it, did we not? Were you here? Did you enjoy that message? Was that encouraging? Is that the kind of life you wanted to live, enjoying the love of God? Well, follow with me as the Apostle Paul keeps going out of his enjoyment of the faithful love of God, okay? This is the end of Romans 8. I want to read it, and then I'm going to start Romans 9. That's what he says. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Yes, through him who loved us. Yes, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, 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 this is what I want to believe. This is how I want to live. This is the gospel I want to preach. And then the apostle Paul keeps talking. And he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness. I can't, this scripture is too much for me. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he goes on from there, but I was just so stunned as I was thinking through this, that this one heart, this one mind, the Apostle Paul could be at the height of enjoyment in the faithfulness and love of God in Christ Jesus, and having just explained so completely the power of the gospel and what it means to be filled with the Spirit, he could just turn on a dime and say, I love the Lord's love and I am so full of anguish every day because my brothers are rejecting this. And I look at that and I just think I don't don't need a fresh theology. I need that heart, okay? I need that heart where I can just be like nothing is better than than God's love and I am broken all the time because my family reject Christ. And many co-workers, not at this church, but in my past, have rejected Christ. And there's people that don't know Him, and they're lost, and they're arrogant about it. And they think that they're wise in the midst of it. And they think that they're getting rid of something wonderful by getting rid of the idea that you can be saved from the wrath of God by Jesus. If you're going to have real faith, you're going to have real sorrows. if you're going to have real faith, you're going to have real sorrows. Because you are going to love people who don't love Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul, every city he went into, he went to the Jews first. And he proclaimed the goodness of God in sending the Messiah, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament, and calling them to faith in Jesus. And nine times out of ten, It was those same Jews that tried to kill him or run him out of town. And after years and years of this, he is still longing for their salvation. Still broken. He's not bitter. He hasn't quit. He's like, I know God is good, and I'm still so broken over all those people who tried to kill me when I told them the truth. And I know that they're in trouble because God has warned us that if you reject Jesus, you will be lost forever in torment that's serious that explains daily anguish and so for me what i'm 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 uh, i'm repenting of a life of not thinking about that stuff i'm repenting of a life of going to superstore and not and and just trying to not think about the fact that there are many people in this building who will one day go to the judgment seat alone, with no Christ and no shed blood and no faith. I'm turning away from that and I'm turning to my Jesus. I want to walk with him. And I want to be with him, the true Noah, building a boat and inviting people into it. Father, I thank you so much. Would you come and move over us right now? Christian, let me press this home. I want to I call you to care about other people's souls in a way that you maybe haven't done. We love them. Try to win them, speak truth to them. But never forget that one day everyone you meet, everyone I meet, will one day be so glorious by the grace of Jesus, living forever in the presence of God or eternally separated from him in a state that if you saw it now would almost drive you mad. Lord, would you make us care? Lord, would you make us care? Lord, some of us have quit. It hurt too much. It was too tiring. We just wanted to go to sleep. God, would you forgive us? And would you ply across your people, Lord Jesus, your own heart? Lord, you are so patient. You've waited thousands of years calling people. And Father, that you would raise up a Paul who would be willing to be beaten and scourged by the people he wanted most to see saved. God, would you give us a heart like that? Friends, where you've needed to hear this morning that you have to, have to, have to cut off your sin if you're going to walk with Jesus. Maybe you've got something, a secret, something on the computer, something you're doing, And your response has been to just die, or to just hide, or to just lie down. Won't you hear the call of Jesus? That will cost you everything to live your life like that. To have a secret God in your heart and a fake God in church will cost us everything. So come to Jesus, come to Him for real. Come to him and find out that he is powerful to save. And that by his Holy Spirit in you, he has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. We can't, can't, can't treat these things lightly. We have to love each other enough to say, this will cost you everything to treat Jesus so poorly. Amen. And this is, I think, the promise of God. As we open up our hearts to how real life is. And we say, God, this is true. You know what else we find? We find that the other verses are true as well. And our shallow experience of God's love starts to go deeper. Because you don't get to choose which verses are important. We either take it all as the word of God we don't. And if we will say, God, I'm so sorry. The, the, the terror of sin, I have just ignored it. The call to holiness, I've been lazy. The dire, dire situation of the lost, I've been hard-hearted. Forgive me. You will experience God in a new way. Amen.